Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. I'm your host, Mike Davis, and each week I bring you conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and inspiring positive social change across a wide variety of sectors. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy the next 40 minutes guaranteed to inspire you with our signature blend of wisdom, experience, and banter. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. Sometimes say that Steve is a critical friend, you know, sort of asks some really tough questions and actually helps you to reflect on things that work well and don't work well and sort of put it into more programmatic thinking and sort of, for example, prioritizing, you know, that's when the commercial acumen comes in. Well, where do you want to invest your resources? You can't, you know, be good at everything. And a lot of organizations obviously want to do everything, help everyone, but sometimes then, you know, they are sort of not you know, doing them themselves a favor, but come by completely overloading them. So a lot of, most of our engagements, they're all really bespoke and it's really centered around a lot of times coordinating. Great to be back with you here, as always. I want to just start by expressing my sincere gratitude for our podcast supporters and recent promotional package clients who have really helped us fast track the move to podcast sustainability. This need has become even more pressing with impending fatherhood and my time to dedicate to the podcast becoming increasingly constrained. If you want to support the podcast, you can become a Supercast member and enjoy some great perks each week or take up one of our few remaining promotional spots on the podcast for this year and reach our growing global audience. More on this in the show notes. We're of course proud to be sponsored by the great folk at Neon Treehouse. Neon Treehouse is still the best digital agency on the planet Earth and have the right solution for any and all of your digital needs. Check out the offer in our show notes to learn more. Creole are now the official drink of Humans of Purpose and their delicious healthy sodas are ideal for those looking for a bubbly and refreshing alternative to sugary sodas or just a break from the booze in general. You can get a great deal on Creole purchases. Check out the details in our show notes to learn more. This week, I'm thrilled to welcome Hannah Ebling to the podcast. Hannah is the CEO of CIFA, short for Social Enterprise Foundation Australia, a leading B Corp that partners with organisations and investors to unlock social impact. CIFA supports the growth and resilience of purpose-driven organisations and generates positive returns for investors. I've been a fan of CIFA since 2018 when I first learned about them and thought Hannah would be a great guest given her long history in the social enterprise sector, but also vast global experience across a range of industry-leading organisations. There's a great piece in here too about how CIFA acts as an intermediary or multi-sided platform to connect up and contribute to the growth of the social enterprise sector. Hope you enjoy my conversation with Hannah as much as I did. So what an honor and great to be joined by you. Hannah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mike. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm a bit disappointed. You said you were in Melbourne for two days and you couldn't stop by. A bit too busy. You know, too busy trying to change the world to a better place, you know, <laughs> just flying with it, but next time for sure. That's possibly the best reason someone's ever given for not coming to see me in person. So uh, we will it's a good departure point for the podcast. Um, terrific to have you on the show. I've admired CIFA for a number of years. Um, I've been in touch with some of the people there. I'm aware of the organisation and its sort of rapid growth. And, um, yeah, just sort of seeing some of your work on LinkedIn and some of the um, articles you've been featured in recently, I've just been really impressed by the role CIFA's playing in um, social and capital markets. Um, so, look, in Humans of Purpose style, before we get into that, we'd love to hear a little bit about your um, your life and career journey. Um, you've lived in many different countries, you've moved around, and 
um, done some amazing things. And you recently became a citizen, so so welcome as an Australian citizen. It's a huge moment. Um, but yeah, just love to hear your reflections on your, your journey and um, and coming to settle in Australia finally. Yeah, no, a really good question. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I think now my parents, they're like, what, you know, this globetrotter that we've got. So I was born and grew up in Germany and I lived there for 19 years. But then I spread my wings and pretty much moved to eight other different countries across the globe. So for university, took a gap year as well, actually before that even. And then when I worked for HSBC, you know, I had placements in different countries. And I think it was interesting to sort of have new perspectives and sort of in a way find your your feet on on new grounds and build new connections and immerse yourself into new cultures. I think it also really built my personal resilience, which I think is actually needed for the work that we are doing with CFIN in the purpose-driven space in terms of, you know, a lot of times we've got barriers and challenges. And so the exposure to work internationally, I think, has sort of equipped me with the tools. But the funny thing is, for example, my name, Hannah, is only spelled with an H, but obviously my parents at the beginning, my parents didn't know that I would be, you know, going all over the Anglo-Saxon world. So, you know, that's sort of like they were a little bit stingy with that, but they didn't, you know, <laughs> when I when I was born that, you know, I would be sort of more on the Hannahs with the, with the two H's in, in that world. But now super proud to be, you know, an Australian citizen and feel very settled here. So I've been here now for pretty much eight years and it's the new home it's just you know the the people are amazing and the landscape is amazing obviously now we've got the climate change all around us with the big rains in Sydney but overall it has been sort of yeah a journey from like corporate to social impact ultimately fascinating and um what stands out about Australia as a place to live and work because you've been all over the your international globe trotter um across industries and I'm sorry about the lost age that your, your parents didn't give you you know it's, it's traumatic but you know I think your shorter name is punchy now and it maybe helps so um yeah, what's yeah. The, what stands out about being here and what, what do you kind of like about living and working here <laughs> It's interesting. Normally, it's so fascinating. Normally, I would have said normally the blue skies, the blue and sunny skies of Sydney. The fact that you've got an environment where you've got so much beautiful nature and I'm really into the outdoors and overnight hiking, you know, the beaches and the mountains, it sort of, I guess, lifts your personal spirit and you bring that to work and not being necessarily, when I, for example, lived in London, I, you know, it was dark when I went downstairs into the tube. I went to the financial district, didn't even surface. I went right into the office tower, <laughs> daylight, the full courtyard, and then, you know, all the way home and it was all dark. And I think it does have an impact. I didn't realise until I moved to Australia what an impact it has sort of on your work and personal psyche. And so, yeah, I mean, at the moment, obviously, the rain here is a little bit depressing, but overall, just the lifestyle I think has really resonated. A little bit of that laid backness, I guess, and not sort of this like complete stress even in financial services or sort of, I guess, the business environment has really attracted me. It's a good place to live, even though it's very far away from everything else. It's a, it's a good, it's like a double-edged sword in a way. You know, we've got our own yeah. little haven so far away, but it is very far away, which makes it tricky. Um, yeah, some interesting points you made. But one thing I always think about, um, my sister lived in the London and was working there for six months. And um, she told me that the big difference was about commuting, like English people on the tube don't make eye contact with each other. They sort of stand propped with their heads firmly pointed down and there's no, there's just no interaction. And um, I, I, when I heard that, I just that's that's entirely bizarre. You know, you're on the train here and people are kind of looking for eye contact and a bit of interaction and probably the pandemic's changed that a bit. But um, 
yeah, it's funny global differences. And Australia certainly seems like a great place to lay down um, roots and spend some time. And um, the importance of nature as well. I mean, for me, nature is regenerative and um, getting on the beach swims and sort of being out on um, trail hikes and whatnot. Um, how important it is, is it for you and sort of, um, you know, the way you think about coming to work as a person? Absolutely. It really gives you the ability to disconnect. Right. And I think especially during the pandemic, we've probably realized that, you know, we're sort of, you know, sometimes quite constrained and sort of what we can do and sort of just don't have that headspace. And again, I think sometimes, you know, when you're in certain work areas where you need that headspace to just sort of like put previous thoughts to, you know, to rest and sort of think outside the box or challenge yourself, sort of be the critical friend. It really helps to have, you know, like no phone reception and sort of just be out there in Mother Nature for sure. Oh, absolutely. And let's talk a bit about, you know, the transition across a few different sectors that you had um, in your yeah. career. Because that, I mean, when I looked at your kind of LinkedIn profile and some of your career journey, um, it's just quite similar to mine, except for the finance part, probably going more legal through government and then into the for-purpose space. But um, talk a bit about that and sort of the, the, how you found your feet and where, where was your right place to be through those experiences? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I went to like a business school and I actually did economics not business and administration, sort of I initially set out and wanted to work for one of the large multinational agencies like World Bank, IMF. So I always had sort of that desire to, you know, in a way help people and make the place a better world. But then I thought, oh, I'd heard through, you know, friends and other students, oh, it's very red tape and sort of that's just not me from a personality. And then it sort of was just easy to sort of slide into the graduate program with a big corporate. And, you know, I don't regret my six and a half years at HSBC. They really equipped me, you know, and gave, I guess, um, invested in my own sort of personal and professional development. So that was great to sort of understand how you, you know, run a project, how you interact with other people, how you convince other people, how you, you know, um, I guess, um, deal with conflicts. But then there came this point then I, that I discovered, you know, impact investing. And I'm like, oh, this is fabulous. This is actually finance and social and more in a private market context. So it really resonated with me. And then I have to say, I did try for one year. So I'm quite probably like entrepreneurial and a little bit like the dog with a bone when I want to do something sort of I've got, you know, my eye on the target and try everything to get there. <laughs> so I did a lot of internal, they call it intrapreneur, a lot of internal yeah. advocacy for HSBC private bank to look into venture philanthropy, impact investing. But the chief investment officer I worked for was very conservative. So at some point then I think I have to say, I had the personal courage to just say like, look, this is just not me anymore. I actually resigned. A lot of people would say, why would you do that? And basically, you know, cut your salary by 80 or 90%, move to the Philippines. And I worked for an international, like emerging market specialist impact investor there for 12 months as a fellow, because I just really wanted to get a different perspective and get skills that I didn't necessarily have. So that gave me a great opportunity and foundation. And then I worked um, for social enterprises as well. I worked on affordable bamboo housing. I always have to think about, you know, there our price point was $2,000 US um, for, for each family. And so when I moved to, you know, Australia and like the disability, specialist disability housing or any housing that we build, I'm like, well, $2,000 US doesn't get you very far. If we were to look, you know, look at bamboo in the in northern Queensland. And so I think then in the end, you know, one of those stories for personal reasons, I want to, was a personal boyfriend import from the Philippines, back, you know, to Australia. And I thought, like, I had actually worked for HSBC before in Sydney. So I thought, like, actually, it's not a bad place. You know, that was 
pretty easy to get like a work permit, which is obviously important if you want to find your feet professionally. And then I just had that great opportunity to run across, you know, safer in my previous CEO, um, Ben Gales, who gave me the opportunity to actually continue the work that I had started in the Philippines. And, you know, how they always say the rest is history. It's, you know, I've definitely followed my heart in a way, which I think is really important um, to have fulfillment, because if you work that much time of your life, you, you know, probably are better off doing something that you really enjoy. So, you know, I still continue to be fascinated by those two things of finance and social. I wouldn't want to work only in, you know, in one of the pillars, but having the two combined is, yeah, it's really rewarding. I mean, not always easy, but, you know, other jobs are not easy, easy either. So, yeah, so jobs have their perks and challenges. Um, with the with respect to impact investing, I mean, the idea is kind of dynamic and really interesting around making a social return as well as a market return. Can you just sort of, from a beginner's mind perspective, give your definition of what impact investing means and and sort of how it's done today? Yeah, yeah, really good, really good question, Mike. So, I mean, effectively, we always talk also about the spectrum of social investing or impact investing, obviously there's sort of, you know, um, finance first investing or when you go to the normal stock market and you're just wanting to maximise the financial return, sort of that's the extreme on one side. And then the other side would be pure grant making, pure philanthropy where it's all about the social impact and nothing, you know, because you don't even get any money back, let alone a financial return. And so then, you know, you've got, I guess, the two different sort of animals in a way in between, which is one of them is the ESG, environmental social governance screening. So a lot of organizations screen positively or negatively, but you're normally still investing in sort of publicly traded, very liquid financial instruments, big companies. And it's not necessarily as intentional. I think that's the difference. Intentionality really comes to the forefront with impact investing, as in the organization primarily exists to generate social outcomes. But then there's the need to be self-sustaining and not be loss-making, which is where the financial return also comes into play. So I'd say impact investing is really around managing that balance between financial return that you need to just, you know, keep the business going and actually attract private capital, private investors to come to the table, but clearly have that intentionality and the ability to actually articulate and measure the social outcomes that your business activities generate. And obviously then in between, you've got even, you know, subsets, whether, yeah, somebody's looking minimum market-based, you know, whatever market-based in that context um, means is obviously then probably benchmarking against to the traditional financial market, or some organizations are also able to provide sort of patient or concessionary, so very low-cost um, finance, finance to, to purpose-driven organizations, as we call them at CIFA. Fantastic. Uh, that's a great introduction. And maybe it's a good opportunity to talk a bit about CIFA, what it is, uh, its purpose uh, in the community and in markets, and just the, the incredible challenge of serving multiple stakeholders to uplift the, um, the, the sector, being sort of borrowers, investors, and partners. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, you know, obviously that I've been with CFA almost for eight years and I have to say there's never a dull day at CFA and I would have never thought that there's so much, I think, variety in a job because every client who, you know, we encounter is very different, is passionate and works in a different impact area. So CFA um, initially was set up about 10 years ago with a Commonwealth grant of $10 million that was matched with private capital. So we really started with that pool of $20 million to provide finance to organisations that basically had outgrown philanthropy, but we're not quite ready for mainstream finance, primarily 
um, loans from banks. So we are an alternative provider that is a lot more flexible and provides a lot more wraparound support to organizations that have a purpose. So we are quite agnostic to the legal structure. We are lending and providing finance to charities, not for profits, but also profit for purpose. But it's all about that sort of, I guess, impact first um, screening and, and lens. And so from that on, from that capital pillar, we've evolved in the last couple of years because we've seen ourselves effectively as a social enterprise, you know, that we have to be also sustainable by adding fee for service. So I don't want to call it really advisory services. I'd say our engagements are very engaged. Um um, you know, doubling up there for the emphasis. Um, so, you know, we are basically meeting organizations where they are at. We go along the journey with them, depending on what they need, whether they need assistance around governance, commercial acumen and informed decision-making in terms of having a decision framework or being able to even just um, measure and articulate their social impact. And then all the way to sort of becoming investment ready to potentially actually, you know, take on repayable capital. And so, that sort of whole realm we call capability building in the broader sense. So that's why at CIFA we are now we like to talk about you know using the tools of capital and capability to ultimately lift the capacity of purpose-driven organizations to you know generate social good for everybody across you know the Australian Australian communities. Fantastic. That's a great explanation. I think capital for me is the more obvious one. I'm interested what are the sort of major capability gaps that you're seeing or the, the desires for help or advisory services? You mentioned governance, but are there other kind of key areas where you think for-purpose organisations sort of um, need a bit of extra help? I think a lot of times it comes down to that they are so stretched in terms of resources. They're so busy with the doing that it's really hard for them to step out and have that strategic sort of helicopter view and look about, you know, do we need to change our strategy? Do we change, need to change our business model? Obviously, I think COVID forced a lot of organisations to think about it. So they have gone, for example, from physical, you know, support meetings to digital but even sort of thinking about, well, how can we become more resilient as an organization? A lot of not-for-profits charities are dependent on, you know, um, sometimes philanthropy or sometimes government funding. But then sometimes there's opportunities to really utilize some probably very specific assets or knowledge or skills, and they could easily commercialize them. But having the time and sort of that additional sometimes Shall we, you know, we sometimes say that CIFA is a critical friend, you know, sort of ask some really tough questions and actually helps you to reflect on things that work well and don't work well and sort of put it into more programmatic thinking and sort of, for example, prioritizing, you know, that's when the commercial acumen comes in. Well, where do you want to invest your resources? You can't, you know, be good at everything. And a lot of organizations obviously want to do everything, help everyone, but sometimes then, you know, they're sort of not you know, doing them themselves a favor, but come by completely overloading them. So a lot of, most of our engagements, they're all really bespoke and it's really centered around a lot of times coordinating. So CIFA being the intermediary, the coordinator, the bridge, the translator, whatever you want to call it, between purpose-driven organizations and then access to other resources, whether that's capital from investors, you know, government grants, philanthropy or capability. And yeah, it's sort of like a lot of times really a journey. A journey that takes time. So if I've learned one thing, is being patient. I'd already learned to be patient in Manila in the Philippines with all the bad traffic. <laughs> you can't get anywhere fast. But in terms of the work context, really, you know, sitting with an organization, if you want to generate very deep, impactful outcome, outcomes, a lot of times it takes time. 
Fantastic. And what would you say is the best way that you're able to build bridges between um, investors and uh, purpose-driven organisations? How does CIFA play that intermediary or connector role? I think it really sort of comes down to, first of all, getting that organisation in a state where they're confident, so they're able to articulate, you know, provide advocacy, you know, for their own, um, you know, for their own cause. So one of the CIFA values is championing. And we really want to champion others and support others in being their own social champion, you know, for good. And so once the organisation is really clear around how they deliver social impact, what is the resource they need to grow and scale, then it's all about on the other side, finding the perfect match. And that's primarily in terms of, I would say, the passion for the impact area. I still actually enjoy that there's that personal element to impact investing where it's not only, you know, the bottom line, what's the financial return, what's the number, but if that's what gets people excited, that what's what glues people together, that sort of ignites feeling for like, yes, I'm really into homelessness as an investor, as a philanthropist, and you've just connected me with an organization that is super disruptive, has some really great ideas. You know, and if we bring those two forces together, something really beautiful can thrive and grow from that. And that's sort of really, it's sort of that personal matchmaking in a way, I guess. And then it's sort of working through the details, which is then more of the harder, (laughs) the harder, the harder part. It's a lot of hats you're wearing, critical friend, uh, critical matchmaker. There's <laughs> lots yes, of important roles exactly. to play. <laughs> yeah. Um, a, a question that's sort of bug-bearing my mind a little bit is, you know, obviously that split between market returns and um, social returns is, is a hard one for a lot of mm-hmm. supply-side financial institutions to get their heads around. How do you effectively shift the mindset and make the case that social returns are extremely important, if not more important than market returns, and perhaps redu- accepting a... Um, a capped or reduced return might actually be beneficial in the long term. Yeah, it certainly has been my personal bugbear for the last <laughs> few years. I mean, we are all about attributing value to both financial returns and social outcomes, and it's hard. And, you know, we appreciate that for certain investors, whether you're a super fund with fiduciary duties or you're running a private um, foundation that has got a certain distribution target of 5%, that there's sort of limitations and requirements for you to generate financial returns. But beyond that, or even within that portfolio investments, we think it really comes down to managing ultimately returns. Obviously, yes, market-based, as I already alluded to earlier, it's really, I guess, what is the market? Is that the market that we consider to be broken and unjust? That as it currently, you know, plays out where we don't look after climate change and all the rest of it. So if we sometimes I think if we want to see the change in this world, we actually have to think very holistically, I'd say across the three items of impact, risk and return. So I'm definitely not saying that, you know, you can't generate financial return by no means. And obviously, there's sometimes the challenge that a lot of the social returns that those purpose-driven organizations generate actually lead to clear cost savings primarily on the government side or society as a whole that is effectively invisible because, you know, the government might, you know, spend a lot of money elsewhere, but it's not directly attributed to that particular organisation, for example, working in crisis accommodation. So really demonstrating overall what is the impact that you you are generating and one of the new, I guess, kits on the block is payment by outcomes. So, you know, government or potentially foundation saying, well, if you deliver that outcome, a social outcome, we can actually put a cost to it 
and we can, you know, we happily pay for, for that outcome to be achieved because we, you know, we basically value it financially. So there's a lot of discussion around social return on investment in terms of that you could really measure in dollar value. But then there's a lot of talk also around the qualitative story. So it's really a mix of managing almost that tripartite, like the three pieces of impact, return and risk. You know, and ultimately it comes down to, I guess, a negotiation again between the organization and the investor in terms of what they feel comfortable with on all three fronts. And that's, you know, again, a role that CIFA a lot of time times place to sort of structure, I guess, the financing arrangement to, to make sure, you know, we've we've covered all grounds. Fantastic. And perhaps as a segue, it might be a good chance to discuss um, innovative housing models and how you how you use them to drive more equitable housing outcomes. Um, in particular, what springs to mind is uh, the Nightingale housing journey that you've been on and the role that CIF has mm. played in that. Yeah, I know. It was actually interesting. I met the Nightingale housing or Nightingale communities under their new um, um, umbrella actually in Melbourne. So I met with um, Jeremy McLeod and Tamara Veltra, who are the co-founders of Nightingale Housing. And I remember still, you know, I met them in May 2015 when they wanted to get up the first Nightingale Housing project, which is effectively a triple bottom line. So it's about, you know, being financially sustainable and equitable, to your point, Mike, but then also obviously clearly leveraging the social component of building urban communities and being very inclusive and then the environmental element, you know, they started out with building first fossil fuel home. Now they're completely carbon, you know, net zero. So, so no gas, no air conditioning, no parking, you know, solar batteries. So it's really around future-proofing the way we live in, in cities. But when they started out, they had knocked on 34 funder doors and everybody says, this is new, you're doing no car parking, no Nobody will ever buy these apartments. No bank will end against it. Um, you know, you are crazy. You don't have a big balance sheet. You don't have a track record. And then I was, it's something, maybe it's because they wanted to put in double glazing and I'm from Germany, you know, where we're now doing triple glazing windows. I've got a little <laughs> bar excited. I'm like, yes, sure. We need to have that in Australia. Um, and so we went on a journey with them. We built an initial funding syndicate or basically like it's almost like for people to imagine like a group of investors coming together to have a big to provide a big loan so we built up with other socially minded investors for the first one and then it sort of just started we the second and third one because you know these projects are quite big like you know easily 10 million dollars even before the construction and land prices um came up to build basically apartments for first home buyers who were really aligned with that nightingale ethos and so we partnered on the second and third project with NAB. So bringing actually a bank to, you know, something quite innovative. And from then on, they just spread their wings. I always say like, you know, they started out as a zebra and now they're a unicorn. Probably, you know, there's not, you know, it's almost nice to meet unicorns in the social finance space, but I think we can't have the expectation that every zebra will become a unicorn. But now they get super fund money in, you know, they've got speed dial with, you know, with the banks in, ter in terms of getting all the finance that was previously really, I guess, limiting their ability to prove a new concept and, and to scale. So I think it has been fantastic that CIFA was able to play that incubator role. And sometimes, of course, you have to take risks. But then, and I think that's really important in our work, is we look at attributes or aspects of social projects 
that I think traditional investors don't see. So, for example, Nightingale, they were able to pre-sell every single apartment in the first project because there was demand for the new way of housing. And, you know, a lot of other developers, traditional developers, would have been very jealous. The fact that they had sold everything before even breaking ground was obviously for us a clear demonstration for, like, yes, there is demand. So it's a lot of that sort of social fabric and resilience that you can't see in a financial report, not on a balance sheet, as sort of those invisible assets like such as having a strong, you know, volunteer network or a really passionate founder. You just, as a normal bank, you might not actually, you know, basically attribute value to that. But an organization such as CIFA and other impact investors, I think they, you know, again, see the organization very holistically. Yeah, that's a that's a really great point. So getting beyond the conventional lending or finance criteria to sort of start to think about the things that might have been thought of in the corporate world as intangible, but we know in the sort of social purpose world are very tangible uh, and make a huge difference. So what are the levers that social purpose organisations have that they can pull on to you know generate um, better outcomes that maybe the finance world needs a bit of education on too? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we've got a sister organization, CIFA Partnerships, um, a charity and working with a lot of startup social enterprises, and they're actually running a program called Kickstarter in, you know, in conjunction with group um, with the Macquarie Group Foundation to give people from the Macquarie Bank, you know, the exposure to what does it mean to be a social entrepreneur, to work with very limited resources, to be very intentional and purpose-driven with the impact. So a lot of times what we find is all about, I guess, yeah, the mindset and the attitude and sort of our values ultimately, you know, that drives a lot of our behavior and decision-making. And I guess that makes it sometimes challenging because you've got so many sort of that um, personal feeling emotions in the mix. But I think it's also when, you know, change and interesting things can happen on the back of it. Yeah, it's really well said. One thing I read that I thought was super interesting from you and maybe relates to the Nightingale example or other conventional housing finance scenarios is that housing finance is all about the money, but impact investing is all about the people. What does that mean to you? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, ultimately, in the end, if you're meeting somebody who's so passionate, right? We're always saying we are providing loans, but ultimately we are investing in people because, you know, as a traditional bank, obviously you're all focused normally on security. So taking a mortgage over property, having security arrangements, you know, in place. But that's sort of all on paper. Ultimately, it's the people in the business who will be able to repay your investment and pay your return. And so this, you know, not being so focused on a checklist and, a, you know, we're filling in all these numbers and metrics into the spreadsheet and then the spreadsheet she says yes or no. It's about actually backing people who want to, you know, change agents, who want to, who see certain things not going well and who are tackling these really wicked social problems and then having a vision. And, I mean, obviously then you've got on the flip side of that sometimes founder syndrome and, like, you know, key person risk and wanting to do everything. So it's, again, finding that balance. But the person is so critical. So that's why we sometimes say we've got that entrepreneurial approach to lending. We are backing people and we are partnering with people. Yeah, fantastic. Look, it's just amazing to hear about all the things you're doing. Um, you know, beyond Nightingale, are there any particular impact stories that you'd like to tell about um, some of the work that CIFA has been doing uh, recently that's sort of top of mind? 
I think one of the other early transactions sort of that I started and then sort of that journey took off is tender funerals. I think it's maybe a little bit of a taboo that, you know, people don't like to talk about end of life, death and funerals, like expensive funerals, like, you know, where families really can't, you know, they get into debt because they just can't pay for it. So it was really interesting when I met Jenny from our community project in near Wollongong. And they had been working on basically a community-led, culturally appropriate, but most importantly, very affordable funeral service. Because at the moment, the industry is very consolidated, you know, very intransparent. People don't necessarily give the, you know, get the choice. And I think part of that grieving process actually to work with families and sort of bring them into the process and be say like, yes, it's part of life. It's, I don't know, it's really fascinated me. And obviously, it's not something that I expected to you know, work on, but we actually helped them set up that first tender funerals um, in Port Kembla, um, south of Sydney, through a blended deal, which is one of my other passion passion areas. So it's combining a social investment with potentially some grant funding. In this case, it came from the Vincent Fairfax Family Foundation. And then in tender's case, actually some crowdfunding, some grant crowdfunding that really shows, again, the community is backing this. The community wants to see the change. And they've been running very successfully. I know, you know, as Germans have black humor, I always said, you know, people are dying to get in to tender funerals. But obviously, <laughs> it's important if you're running a social enterprise that you're generating revenue. But always felt really bad looking at like, well, what are your projections? How much revenue have you generated through funeral services? But most importantly, they've now got over 60% of families actually participating in the mortuary process of saying goodbye to their loved ones. And again, I think it's not something that you would necessarily talk about at a dinner table, but it is that everybody, you know, everybody's touched by that eventually and actually making sure that that is a process that helps everyone is super, super important. And now, really exciting, they're the first purpose-driven organisation across Australia that uses its social franchise model to scale. So they've got a franchise agreement in place, but obviously it's socially minded, so very intentional on the purpose. So we are just about to open doors. I'm not going to do that really bad joke again. Um, on the mid I think it's a great joke. Um, yeah, exactly. You're <laughs> dying to get through the door. Um, Tender Funerals Mid-North Coast. We are fortunate, again, to partner with the Vincent Fairfax Family Foundation on that. And then Canberra, they're property hunting, and we've got Snow Foundation lined up. And I know in Tasmania, Northern Queensland, there's always communities really wanting sort of to buy in. And that's another beautiful story where I sort of feel a little bit like almost Sifa being, I guess, the midwife to bring something, you know, to life. And it took me, that's interesting, Mike, it took me, I think I was looking through my diary the other day, almost 18 months on the first Nightingale project. And I worked two years on pretty much a little bit over two years on the tender funerals deal. So it's sort of, you know, that persistence patience, passion, and ability to bring in partners, sort of the four piece of, you know, a lot of times working through these, um, yeah, purpose-driven intricacies, I'd say. Yeah, I like your analogy. And I think, you know, if we extend to the, the pregnancy, there's the midwife, there's the OBGYN, mm. there's the, uh, you know, anaesthetist doctors on support. Um, it's a whole... Um, when I think about your blended finance model, it's uh, really interesting to think about multiple sources of capital. So um, leveraging philanthropy, government, community, um, you know, crowdfunding, it, it sort of seems to be a much more interesting and clever and, and maybe a bit more aligned, lower risk way of bringing in capital for social purpose. So I think that's really, really interesting what you mentioned. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, because in the end, for example, CFOX still has that $20 million balance sheet. Mm. And over the 10 years, we've dispersed about 60 and approved 60 loans. We've dispersed over 40 million. So we've completely recycled our balance sheet twice. But the most exciting part of the story is that we were able to attract through partnerships and through conversations an additional $85 million from other people. So actually unlocking a total $125 million for social impact. And CFAS part is actually, I mean, it's still, you know, a third, but it's not sort of the largest chunk. And I think that again sort of speaks to Another value that we've got is togetherness, you know, that together we can achieve more and we can't be good at everything. We are bringing other partners and other contributors, other sources of funding to the mix as is needed, you know, for each for each of the different projects we are looking to work with. Fantastic. Look, been a ter- terrific conversation. Um, there are many ways that you can contact CFOP. And uh, if you're a purpose-driven organisation and you're looking to access capital or capability, if you're an investor or if you want to support the work through investing in us or investing in the PDO sector, us being you. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a lot of reasons um, to contact you, but how can people do that? Uh, what's the best way to get in touch with CFOP and also to learn more about your work and maybe to connect with you personally also? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, we've got a a great um, social finance and engagement team. So you can, you know, submit an inquiry form via our website, www.cifa.com.au. So there's also even, especially for organizations that are looking to access finance, we've got a couple of sort of screening questions that help us, you know, sort of, I guess, get in touch with you in a very tailored and very personal way. And, you know, just like a general inquiry form, but also you can look me up on LinkedIn. I always like to connect with you know, like-minded people or just people interested in exploring. So I would really like to encourage purpose-driven organizations to have the courage to explore finance and go on that journey. It's not going to happen overnight, but a lot of them, you know, we also sometimes say dead is a dirty word. It's actually not if you use it cleverly um, as a tool. So for organizations to sort of just think through that entrepreneurial independence mindset. And then on the investor side, it's really around that mindset shift around the values, how they attribute you know, I guess, um, social impact versus um, financial returns. So if you want to see the change in the world that you're looking for as a philanthropist or an impact investor, what does your capital have to look like? What does that capital structure, the return expectation have to look like for you to actually, you know, see that change happen? So those are the type of conversations we would love to, you know, have with other people, new existing friends of CIFA and hopefully, you know, new friends of CIFA as well. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me. We'll just uh, stop the recording. If you want to hang around, we'll have a little debrief. Sounds good. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player and why not share it with a friend or two? If you want more from your Humans of Purpose experience, become a Humans of Purpose member today through our new platform, Supercast. All you need to do is hit the link in our show notes. If you have a message to share with our audience about your brand, products, or services, we have a wide variety of paid promotional packages available. Please get in touch by hitting the link in our show notes.